Welcome again to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. I appreciate you joining me again. Uh, We do these weekly, and we are studying right now a verse-by-verse commentary, if you will, through the great book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Being that we are living in the last days, as far as I can tell prophetically, many, many Bible scholars, uh, commentators, preachers, theologians agree with that. I think there's been an increased interest in this book of Revelation. So I decided a while back, after doing a series, a a broader overview of the subject of end times prophecy, that I'd go right into a study of the book of Revelation, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. So that's what we've been doing. I hope you have had a chance already to go back, or maybe you have been keeping up with, that'd be even better, uh, with our weekly uh, podcast uh, right now on the book of Revelation. If you'll be turning in your Bibles, we're going to pick up in chapter 11. We're just about halfway through the 22 chapters of Revelation, and it's been an exciting study. I've went through it a couple of times over the years with our church, uh, the church here, the church back in Ohio where I uh, pastored years ago, and, and I love this book. Uh, is it a difficult book? Yes, can we understand everything about it, every verse, every word of every verse? No, I don't know anybody that can. But that uh, can be said about all the Bible, for that matter. Uh, we are to glean and gain all the knowledge we can as God's Spirit teaches us, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, as we continue to study and restudy and look at uh, what other people have written and compare Scripture and so forth and gain greater knowledge. So, uh, we're not claiming to have all the answers. Uh, I don't know anybody that does. I read commentaries. I've been reading different uh, writers for 35 plus years. I've been in ministry on books like Revelation and, and all the other ones for that matter. And and I can tell you that even the commentators aren't sure of everything. Uh, God's word has to be greater than man's understanding or he wouldn't be God. If we believed in a God that we could fully comprehend and understand everything that he said and did and is going to do, then he really wouldn't be God. He'd be down on the level of man. So remember that great verse I defer to often, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. So there's going to be some secrets. There's going to be some mysteries. And the book of Revelation has some of those. But on the other hand, let me kind of balance what I've just said by saying that God didn't keep us in the dark about these things either. I think there's enough written and clearly written that we can put together the basic events, the chronological timeline, I think, of the end times uh, to where I think we can get a great look at what God is going to do uh, at the end of time. And so that's what we've been doing. And so I hope you're ready to join me as we get back into the text. Now, we have studied uh, already through chapter 10. We finished chapter 10 on last week's podcast, and we're going to begin chapter 11. Now, we are kind of in the midst of looking at these three series of seven judgments. We're in the middle body of the book of Revelation. It's the longest section, uh, and it really deals with the events during a, a period called by scholars, and it's even the phrase is even used in Scripture, the Great Tribulation, a seven-year period, we think, divided by two, three-and-a-half-year periods. And we're not just making that up. You're going to see that again in the text today from chapter 11. Uh, but during that time, horrifying things are going to be happening on earth. 
First of all, God's wrath is going to be poured out upon the wicked, those who've rejected his son and and, uh, turned away from the invitation to come to Christ and be saved. Uh, And then on the other hand, there's also the horror uh, of the Antichrist, known as the beast in the book of Revelation. He and his sidekick, known as the false prophet, are going to be controlling the world, I think, for pretty much the whole seven years uh, although the way he rules will be different in the latter three and a half years than the than the first half, but uh, the the way the entire tribulation period is looked at on earth, you have to take the, both of those factors into consideration: God's judgment on the wicked, the Antichrist tyrannical dictatorship over the world, and his hatred for Christians and for God's people during that period. And we've been seeing some of that. We'll see even more as we go along. Now, uh, having going back now, I should say, to the trumpet judgments we were in the midst of, we studied the, the seven seal judgments, and the seventh seal was really an opening up into seven more judgments known as the trumpet judgments. We had finished the sixth trumpet uh, in, at the end of chapter 9, and then there was this uh, kind of break in uh, the revelation of these trumpets until we get to the seventh trumpet at the end of this 11th chapter. So chapter 10, short chapter, 11 verses. We covered it last week. Uh, Now we begin chapter 11, and for much of this chapter, we will uh, remain uh, silent about the seventh uh, trumpet, the final trumpet of those seven, until we get to the end of the chapter. And then we'll pick up the last of the seven judgments I like to call it that because that's really what they are and what they look like. That'll be the seven vile or bold judgments that we'll cover in chapter 16. But a lot is in between these. Chronology is the most difficult part of understanding the book of Revelation to me. Uh, I mean, there's other things that are difficult too, but this is the most difficult. How do we place these things in some time frame? How, How can we say this happens first, this happens next, this happens next? It's nearly impossible. Uh, We can speculate. We can kind of conjecture some things, kind of put some dots together to, to, uh, you know, uh, connect some dots, I should say, to kind of get a big picture. But uh, I'm not going to be dogmatic about time frame. I will say that I think the events from chapter 4 through chapter, really chapter 19 or chapter 18 at least, and we'll show you what we mean by those two chapters kind of differing a little bit, Definitely 4 to 18 are about the tribulation period, both what happens up in heaven during that time, but also what goes on down on the earth. Now, let's pick up in chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, I'm reading again from the King James Version. If you have another version, that's that's fine. It may read a little bit different, so I don't want to confuse you with that. We here at our church use the King James for uh, some reasons that uh, I feel are important, so that's what I stay with in unity to the text that all of our people will be using. But let me read from verses 1 and 2, so you follow along with me. Chapter 11, Revelation Verses 1 and 2. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now, I'm going to stop there because we'll change direction into another uh, subject when we move right into verse 3. 
for these two short verses, all we can really get from this is we have a measurement uh, and some activity that is taking place in the temple of God. Now, um, here's what's difficult. We've been seeing uh, reference to the temple in heaven, the real temple. Uh, evidently, God has an actual temple in heaven that uh, apparently, from the best that we can uh, surmise from bringing this together, we think that the, that the temple in heaven is the real thing and the one that God told Israel to build on earth, first the tabernacle, then later the temple of Solomon, and then the temple rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity, are just replicas of his true temple. So when the Bible says here, beginning in verse 1, that John, the apostle, that's, that's me, there was given me a read, I think that's John, the writer, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these amazing visions that he gets. Uh, he was given a reed. A reed would be like a, measure, a measuring stick. It's just a stick, but it's used like a measuring stick, a rod. Uh, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now, here's the difficult part. Uh, is he talking about the, the temple in heaven or the temple on earth? Well, I think verse 2 uh, at least gives us some clarity and I think it's probably the temple on earth because he says, but the court, which was without the temple or the outside, remember you had even in the little tabernacle, the small original mobile tabernacle built by the, Moses and the people of Israel when they were out in the wilderness wanderings uh, and used out there, that temple or tabernacle uh, had an outer courtyard. So you had one place, the small little kind of tent building that only the high priest and his his direct descendants, the priests could go into and serve God. And then you had outside of that, uh, the courtyard where the Levites could go and the priests to serve in that capacity. And then the people of Israel, uh, the other tribes that were not of the tribe of Levi or the priestly tribe were not allowed in there. So uh, when the temple was built, uh, there was basically somewhat the same idea. The, the, the priest of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, were the only ones allowed into the later temples. But then the people began to uh, go out into an outer courtyard. And that courtyard was expanded, we believe, in the temple in Jerusalem built by Solomon and even the later temple that was built and, and uh, remodeled or renovated or added to by Herod, the very temple that Jesus our Lord would have walked into. Uh, but, of course, we know that temple also was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. This temple that John is writing about and we're reading about here, I think is the temple on earth that is rebuilt during the tribulation period. Now, that is a really debated and controversial idea. I will only say this, that if you go to Israel today, there are, there are groups, one of them I know for sure is called the Temple Faithful, these are a group of Jewish um, uh, patriots, I'd like to call them, lovers of Israel who believe that the temple should be rebuilt on Mount Moriah, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem where it originally stood. Now today there stands a, a Muslim Islamic mosque called the Mosque of Omar, uh, uh, and it is up there on the Temple Mount today. If you go there, you see this huge golden dome. Uh, that's the Islamic mosque that sits up on the Temple Mount. 
And now all the controversy comes in and wondering how uh, the Jews are going to be allowed to build a temple with a mosque standing right in the same place. Well, virtually in the same place. There's a little bit of argument at least about exactly where the original two temples stood on that mountain versus where uh, the mosque of of Islam stands now. But nonetheless, here's the issue. Uh, I think the, the temple will be rebuilt. A Jewish temple will will be rebuilt. And I think it's this temple that uh, John is referring to. And I tell you what the key is for me is the reference uh, to this, this temple. It says, For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall tread, shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now, there we get one of these phrases I told you about that teaches us a seven-year tribulation. We first get that that uh, time frame, that chronology from Daniel 7. One week in Daniel 20, uh, 9.27 refers to a week of years. We think that's seven years. But in Revelation, I think it really nails it down because you have a reference to three different time periods. And this amazing chapter, chapter 11, is going to give us two of them right in consecutive verses. Here it talks about 42 months. Now, of course, 42 months is three and a half years. And in the next verse, we'll read it in a moment, it's going to give it in days. But what I'm saying is the fact that John mentions this temple uh, being uh, given unto the Gentiles, what does he mean? It's not like given as a gift. It means taken over and and corrupted and polluted and, and, and uh, uh, in some way desecrated is a good word. And I think that's by the Antichrist. We believe that the Antichrist, the beast, uh, will go into that temple at the midpoint of the tribulation and, and perform an abomination. It's called by Jesus himself the abomination of desolation. Uh, without getting too bogged down in it right this moment, I would just say that it's it's a reference to the Antichrist going in and taking over that temple and him demanding worship for himself, he's going to set up an image or a statue of himself. We'll see it in chapter 13 in that temple. And I think it happens right at the midpoint because it, it indicates by that phrase 40 and two months that for the rest of the seven-year tribulation, that temple, uh, he says, but the court which is without the temple leave out. Uh, in other words, there's no need to measure the outside portion because the whole thing, I think, is going to be corrupted because the, the Antichrist is going to control the whole mount, the, the building itself. He's going to put his own uh, wicked image of himself to desecrate the temple. You'll remember some history. Maybe you're a history buff like I am, but there's a preview of this that happened back in the intertestamental period. It's very interesting. You know, the period between the Old and New Testament is commonly called the silent years or the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament with the last book of Malachi to the beginning of the events, I don't say the writing, but the events of the New Testament that start with Gabriel appearing to the parents, or to the father, really, of John the Baptist, Zacharias. So there was an event that happened in, the, in this silent year period of 400 years. It was a long period, four centuries, uh, when the Maccabees... Um, uh, the story of the Maccabees and Hanukkah uh, took place. But just prior to that, what led to the Maccabean revolt and the, uh, the miracle of Hanukkah that the Jewish people even today celebrate is what was called the desecration by 
a wicked king. He was a Syrian by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he supposedly went into the temple that still stood there at that time, that it, remember, built by Zerubbabel and the captives that were allowed to come back from, from Babylon once the Medo-Persians took over uh, a control of Israel and the Jewish people. Anyway, this wicked Antiochus went in and offered a pig on the altar and desecrated the temple. Um, that event uh, is commonly thought by, by Bible scholars, prophecy scholars, to at least be a preview of what we're really reading about here and what Jesus himself in Matthew 24 referred to as the des- uh, abomination of desolation. Abomination is something corrupt, perverted, wicked, evil. And I think the Antichrist is going to go into this temple and take it over, set up his own image, and demand that people worship him uh, like they worship God. Now, there's one other important passage. Maybe I'll go ahead and just read it to uh, kind of nail this thing down to show you that this is a biblical uh, in, in what it teaches. Um, it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which both First and Second Thessalonians are very prophetic books, a lot about the end times, the second coming. Um, listen to what it says about the Antichrist. It calls him in verse 3. I'm reading from chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, verse 3. Uh, the last part of the verse, I'll just jump there, jump in there. It says, And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Uh, I think that's the Antichrist, the beast. Now, notice it says, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So I think those two verses, along with what we saw in Daniel and what Jesus himself referred to as this abomination of desolation, proves that the Antichrist will go in in the middle of the seven-year tribulation and desecrate that temple by setting up his own image in there and claiming he's God and wanting to to demand the worship of all humanity uh, to himself as God. Well, uh, I think that kind of covers all we can in these first two verses. We'll pick up that thought a little bit more uh, later when we refer to the Antichrist more directly. Now, we go into what's really one of the most fascinating parts of the this, these events of the end times, and that's the introduction of these two special witnesses. And I want to really spend a lot of time on them from verse 3 to verse 14. We may not cover it all today, of course, because there's just such a, such a tremendous amount set, up, set here and so much we need to cover. But let me read now, and we'll jump into this discussion where we're introduced to these two special witnesses. Uh, let me pick up in verse 3, down through verse 6. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy or preach a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut up heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, uh, the biggest question that's always asked when you introduce these two witnesses in verse 3 and through verse 14 is who are they? 
they're not na- they're not named. Okay, so let's just say for sure we can't be one hundred percent sure they're not named. Now I will uh, tell you what I think, and and I think a good um, speculation, at least a good guess, uh, is going to be that these two men are none other than Moses and Elijah. Uh, because the description of what they do and what happens uh, when they come down and, and have their ministry on earth really seems to describe those two men. Well, I'll wait to get to more evidence for that as we go through these verses again. But let me go back up to verse 3. I kind of got ahead of myself here. Um, he says that I will give power. That's interesting. God's going to give power to these two witnesses, uh, these two special men that will be sent down to earth during the tribulation period to preach to the world. It says, and they shall prophesy. The word prophesy is the old King James. It could be translated or could be interpreted, is a better way to say it, as either foretelling or, uh, in other words, predicting the future. Prophecy can include that, of course. But sometimes it doesn't mean foretelling. It means forthtelling, F-O-R-T-H, to declare truth. That's what preaching is. I get up and preach in the pulpit every week. I'm I'm often just telling truth, repeating truth that, and of course, all preaching uh, is supposed to be forth telling the truth of God. Now, these two men are going to be preaching, but notice the time frame. It, it's so specific here. For 1,203 score days. Now, that's 1,260 days, okay? The old King James uses the word score. That's 20 now, let me go back to time frame. Remember, I just mentioned in the earlier verse about 42 months. If you keep time according to Jewish time, okay, this is important. Now, we, since the, since the New Testament and the Bible was completed, and the canon was closed with the book of Revelation, we, of course, have come to some scientific uh, discoveries that have been important that have helped us. And we now know that a year is not 360 days like the Jews kept it in the Old Testament period and even up through the time of Christ, but now 365 and a quarter days because of the earth revolving in its orbit around the sun. Uh, and all that has been learned and verified, and, and we would agree with that. And the Bible does not contradict that, by the way. All we know is that the Jews that didn't have that kind of astronomical knowledge yet, they kept time uh, by the lunar phases and not by the earth's revolving around the sun. So they kept months at 30 12-day months or the phases of the moon in 30-day increments. So to the Jewish mindset, a month was 30 days. So their years had 360 days. With that in mind, you can do the math. It's not hard to do. 1,260 days is what? Three and a half years exactly. So they believed in a 360-day year, a 1,230-day months. And so when God refers to these two witnesses, he's using the accepted time period. It's not that God didn't know. God established the world. He knows exactly how long a year is. He's the keeper of time. He's outside of time. He's greater than time. All we're saying is according to what John writes and what people would have understood and knew, the uh, scripture uses this phrase uh, 1,203 score days to refer to three and a half years, just like 42 months did earlier, okay? Um, Now, it says they'll do that ministry clothed in sackcloth. Well, that already is a little bit of a 
a, t- a tip to show you, a little hint to show you what their ministry is going to be like. In the Old Testament, remember, you can't understand the book of Revelation without the Old Testament, having a good knowledge of the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, sackcloth was always associated with repentance, with with sorrow and sadness and, and anxiety and pain and suffering and reflection uh, and so forth. And these men are going to preach for three and a half years uh, and their ministry is going to bring a lot of repentance. It's going to bring a lot of sadness and sorrow and heartache. Uh, thankfully, it'll be in a good way to those who do repent and turn to Jesus Christ. But for those who hate them, it's going to bring a lot of anguish on their hearts to hear their message. Now, let me backtrack before I go any further. And I want to, I want to fill in something I think is important. Why do we even need these two witnesses? I mean, this is, this is important. Um, why does God raise them up? And, and he says that they'll, they'll minister for three and a half years. And I think you're going to see as we go further down, especially to when they are killed and resurrected, that I think they minister during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Never is that division of three and a half years put there uh, without meaning it means either the first three and a half or the last three and a half. It wouldn't be a three and a half in the middle somewhere. It wouldn't even make sense. Uh, we think the three and a halves are separated perfectly in the middle. So I think these two witnesses raised up by God, God says, I'll give them power to preach, to prophesy for this three and a half year period. Uh, why? Because remember, let's go back. Let's understand something I think is really pivotal to this. Uh, to the choice of these two men being sent down. If the rapture happens prior to the seven-year tribulation, and I believe it does, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, and I won't go into all the reasons, we have talked a lot about that, but if God catches up, that's what the rapture simply means. If you don't like the term, you say, well, it's not in the Bible, that's okay. Let's just say he takes away all believers, okay? If you're more comfortable with that terminology, that's fine. He's going to take all believers away up into heaven. Well, wait a minute. If all believers are taken into heaven, who's going to be left on earth to be a witness for Christ, to be a witness for the Lord and for his truth and for his gospel? Because the, the world will then be full of mortal people. Now, I believe, as and I've already explained this, that if you had heard the gospel and rejected it prior to the rapture, I don't believe you're going to have a chance to be saved again, no matter who preaches. But for a lot of the world that has never had an opportunity to turn to Christ, has never had a presentation of the gospel, have never understood, never been exposed to the gospel, well, they're going to have a chance to be saved. But now, who's going to tell them? If all the Christians are gone, okay, who's going to be the witnesses? Well, I think God specifically sends these two as special missionaries. That's a good way to think of them. Special missionaries sent down. And they're going to have their ministry right from Jerusalem. And they're going to preach. And we're going to see later, well, you know what? I can throw it on now because we've already talked about them. It's okay. I won't be going ahead of myself. You remember the reference to the 144,000? They're found in chapter 7. They'll be referred to again in chapter 14. Um, I believe the first, if not, well, let me backtrack. I don't think they're the only. Let me just say I think the first and main converts to the preaching of these two special witnesses is going to be the 144,000 men that are specially sealed and and called by God to then witness to the rest of the world for the last three and a half years. Well, possibly even for part of that first three and a half. I'm not going to be dogmatic. 
I'm, I'm only saying that I think these two witnesses begin the gospel ministry of the tribulation period. And from their preaching, 144,000 will be saved. And then from the 144,000, a multitude will be saved. We've already talked about them. And we're going to see some more about the multitude that is saved from the preaching of these special men, the 144,000. Now, let me go back. I don't want to get too much ahead of myself there. Let's go back to verse 4. It's going to try to explain who these men are. It says, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now, what in the world is he saying? Of course, it's symbolic language. They're not literally olive trees or literally candlesticks. He's referring to how they are, they are spoken of in symbolic language in the book of Zechariah. Now, I'll just give you the verses, and you can look them up on your own because I don't want to get too bogged down and doing too much cross-referencing. But in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 3 and verse 14, you'll see reference to these two olive trees and these candlesticks. It's like they're standing next to the throne of God, ready to come back and do their work. And God finally sends them. Okay, so I think these two olive trees and candlesticks that Zechariah predicted are now these two men. Well, we know they are, because he said these are the two olive trees and candlesticks. Standing for the God of the earth, ready to do his work. Now, here's why I believe that most likely, I'm not going to be dogmatic, can't guarantee it, but most likely it's going to be Moses and Elijah. Because look at the description. Verse 5 and 6 describe things that connect perfectly to Moses and Elijah when they had their ministries on earth. And I'll, I'll interrupt and say this. Who are the two men that came and stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ in, uh, in the Gospels when Jesus took Peter, James, and John and when was transfigured? In other words, his glory uh, instead of being veiled and hidden underneath his skin, in his body, if you will, that was let out. And they saw the perfect glorified Christ and all his divine glory. He's God. Uh, but who was there? Moses and Elijah, right? Well, that may add some weight to our argument. But nonetheless, listen to this. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth. Let's stop there. You remember what happened when Elijah, when Ahab sent uh, three groups of 50 soldiers to capture Elijah because he hated Elijah. Ahab, the wicked king, wanted to kill the prophet of God. Every time the, the group of 50 were burned up out of the mouth, if you will, by the very word of Elijah. He said the word and they were, they were destroyed, okay? And if any man will hurt them. See, that's what they were trying to do. <coughs> and we're going to see that these two witnesses will be hurt, but we'll get to that later. But I'm getting into the description. And devoureth their enemies. Yeah, one day that's going to happen too. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Now, we don't have the details specifically of how this part of the verse is carried out, but we do have generally the idea that, that the Antichrist and those who uh, put these men to death Okay, I think it's going to be by the order of the Antichrist himself that these two men, probably Moses and Elijah, who've been preaching for three and a half years, bringing many thousands to Christ, and yet becoming a, a thorn in the side, a real irritant to the Antichrist and, and all his followers, they're going to be killed. And those who kill them will get theirs. And we'll see that at the end of the book of Revelation. So you're going to have to wait for that. But now let's go to, to verse 6. Uh, these have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Here's another reason why 
We think that one of them will be Elijah. This is another reference to Elijah. That's what Elijah did. Elijah, uh, by God's design, remember God tells him to go to the brook Cherith and he'll be taken care of by a raven and and uh, by the, the, the brook uh, of water until it dries up. Then he goes and he uh, is told to go to a widow of Zarephath. And there at Zarephath, this widow woman who has just one son left, she's about to die of starvation herself. God multiplies the oil and meal in her barrels and allows her to feed uh, and, and take care of Elijah for the rest of the, the three, uh, three and a half years uh, of the drought. Well, that's basically a picture here. These have power to shut up or to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Now, both of these first references to the fire coming out of his mouth and the shutting up heaven of the rain really would make us think more of Elijah. But then the last two references in verse 6 make us think of this great man, Moses. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood. Remember the first miracle, really, that Moses is allowed to perform to show Pharaoh that he's from God and that he's genuine, that, that he's authentically a spokesman for God. As he, he takes his rod and he touches the waters there uh, in Egypt and they turn to blood. These have power over the waters, turn them to blood. Now, we can't be sure, by the way, some, some might ask, you might already be thinking this way. How about some of the things that happen in the book of Revelation? We'll see waters turn to blood. Uh, we've already, in fact, looked at that, uh, have we? Uh, I might be getting ahead of myself. Let me make sure. Maybe I, oh, yeah, 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 we did. Yeah, the second trumpet. Remember, the third part of the sea became blood? Some people might ask, well, was it Moses that actually made this happen? I have no idea. I can't say that for sure. Uh, all we know is the second trumpet occurred when the second angel sounded that trumpet and the sea became blood. But nonetheless, can't you see what I'm getting at here? I think the description does fit Moses, and it may only be given to describe this man. And then the last one fits him too, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will, as the two men will. Well, back to the plagues, we know Moses and his brother Aaron were the instigators of the plagues. Remember, they were the ones that came before Pharaoh really 10 different times, you could say, to send down these plagues by the power of God on this unbelieving, uh, obstinate, stubborn man, Pharaoh, before finally, after he, after God killed Pharaoh's own son, his firstborn son, and all the firstborn in Egypt, finally he would let them go on what we call the night of the Passover out of Egypt. Well, I think definitely Moses uh, is the one that reminds us of the turning the water into blood and smiting the earth with all plagues. So, again, not being dogmatic, but we think these two olive tree witnesses, candlestick witnesses, you might call them, uh, are Moses and Elijah. Now, I'm going to stop there for today because we, we don't have time to deal with the rest of uh, the uh, passage about these two men because it's just spectacular. There's so much in there. So I think it's good to stop here. We'll pick up on verses 7 through 14 at least next time because there's a lot I want us to get into as we see the ministry of these two men, but especially what happens to them, how they are so hated will be killed. They'll be martyred. But uh, uh, we'll see what happens after that too because it's just as, as thrilling as their ministry itself. So Thank you for listening, and again, we'll come back next week and pick up the text. I close with our familiar motto, conviction for truth, compassion for people. God bless you.